Good morning, New Hope. Thank you to the Von Trapp family this morning. It's always fun when the Glens and the Cupchecks get together. Thanks for leading us into the presence of God this morning. Appreciate that. If, uh, if you don't know me, that's because we haven't met yet. Um, my name is Gary Post. I'm the associate, uh, the associate pastor here. Mark and Laura Lee are away this weekend. And so I'm going to be talking with you this morning. We're, we're going to be focused on a uh, very practical uh, explanation of God's Word, uh, application of God's Word to relationships, and in particular to marriage relationships. But, but many of the principles that we'll be talking about apply to relationships in general. God's uh, provided us a lot of information on, on how he has enabled us to, to live in this world in, in relationship with other people and how best to do that. Uh, before I get to that, I'd like to remind you with regard to uh, moving forward. Many of you were here last week. You, you got this packet last week. You heard Mark's presentation last week about the vision for this church and moving forward. Uh, we believe that God's positioned us here in this community uh, to, to help... Uh, a great number of people over the next decade come to faith in Jesus Christ and, and to grow up into spiritual maturity. And, and so we're going to need a larger facility to do that. Um, if, if you've been here uh, any amount at all, you, you know that in, uh, many times the auditorium's full and, and more often the uh, children's ministry is jam-packed, the parking lots are full, and, and we're just at the capacity. At, at three services, we're at the capacity of what we can do here. We really feel as if God's leading us to build another facility and uh, so we've purchased some land out at Saginaw and Newton. God's gone ahead of us. That we paid for that with cash. And we're, we're beginning a, a fundraising campaign to, to uh, ask God's people to uh, come aboard that vision and be part of that and leave that kind of spiritual legacy for the people that will follow us generation after generation that will change the spiritual trajectory of their lives for eternity by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So uh, if... If you can be a part of that, if you prayerfully consider that. And if you haven't picked up one of these, there are some available to you uh, near, the, uh, near the exits. You can pick one up there. There's a brochure in there that explains all about moving forward, what we're trying to do, the direction we think that uh, God is leading us, and, um, and prayerfully consider getting on board with that. Before we begin this morning talking about marriage and what God has to say about that and how we can make our marriages great, uh, let's go to God in prayer and, and ask him to, to uh, empower this time together. Dear Father, we're aware that there is nothing of any eternal significance that will take place here this morning unless your Holy Spirit's in it. And so we ask for, for you to release your power into this time together. Into the words that I speak, allow me to speak with clarity and, and power what you would have me to say and open our hearts uh, so that uh, you can impress on us the truth of your word as it pertains to our relationships with some of the most important people in our lives. We pray all this in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, um, in our recent uh, men's Bible study that uh, many of you attended, uh, we, we used a, a series by a, a guy named Eric Mason. He is a, holds a doctorate in theology out of Dallas a theological seminary, but he's kind of a, a gritty black inner city pastor in, in Philadelphia. Runs in a, a church called Epiphany Fellowship there. And the, the series was on sanctification. That is, how do we become more like Jesus Christ over, over time as men? And um, the, the last segment in that, in that six-part series was about strongholds. And he, he talked about str how, how strongholds or or false belief systems can keep us from what God's intending to accomplish in our lives. And he used the passage out of 2 Corinthians uh, 10, 3 through 5, to explain about strongholds. And, and that reads uh, this way. The Apostle Paul says, Though we walk in the flesh, we, that is you and I, are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. That is, they're not physical weapons. They're not guns and bullets. But they have divine power to destroy strongholds that is, false ways of thinking. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. What Paul is communicating to, to us here is, is he's describing the spiritual battle 
this battle that takes, plan on an, uh, takes place on another plane of existence, the spiritual battle uh, that we're involved in every day, that we're engaged in using the weapons of, of faith, prayer, the Word of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit. That is, releasing God's power uh, in, into situations uh, to accomplish uh, God's purposes in those situations on a spiritual level. And he defines, uh, Pastor Mason defines strongholds in this way. He says, strongholds are fleshly arguments that resist the word of God. Strongholds compete in our minds with God and his word. They're systems of unbelief that inhibit our ability to grow through the sanctifying work of the gospel of Christ by faith. In, in other words, the strongholds in our lives are, are attitudes and belief systems that are in opposition to what God says is truth. God says this is reality, and our culture says, no, this is reality. And, uh, and they compete with each other, and, and our cultural uh, stronghold, that cultural belief system, can sometimes displace what God says is reality and keep us from what God uh, desires for us. For example, the Bible says clearly that God answers prayer. In fact, Jean, uh, Jesus says in uh, John 15, 7, he says, if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And, and yet, if I have a personal stronghold that is a belief system in my life that says that God doesn't answer prayer, well, I, well, I won't pray. And, and God will be blocked from accomplishing what he hopes to in my life through prayer because of my own unbelief. You see, that's a, a personal stronghold in, in my life if, if, if I don't believe that, that God answers prayer. In, in the same way, there are, there are cultural strongholds. And the guys at the study the other night, we talked about about this, there are cultural strongholds that influence us, influence us in our thinking, and, and keep us from what uh, God desires for us. And and we talked about uh, the idea, for example, that the, the purpose of our lives is our is our to pursue our own, to pursue our own happiness. It seems so so American, the selfish pursuit of our own happiness. In fact, it's in, enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, isn't it? It says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It seems so American. It, it must be in the Bible, right? Well, not necessarily. That's not, that's not necessarily God's perspective on what the pursuit of our lives should be. It's part of our culture, though, and so many have sought happiness through various experiences, uh, perhaps one adrenaline rush after another, one extreme experience after another, through, certainly through accumulation of material things or accumulation of degrees or other kinds of accomplishments, uh, sometimes through mind-altering substances or multiple sexual experiences, uh, whatever it is, all those attempts ultimately come up short in terms of yielding ultimate satisfaction and happiness. God's word is clear. His perspective on this uh, tells us who we belong to and what the purpose for our life should be. If indeed we're followers of Jesus Christ, then, then uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So scripture makes it clear that, that we can't find happiness by pursuing it directly and that we're not even entitled to pursue happiness directly, but it comes as a, as a byproduct of pursuing God and his purposes for our lives. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 37.4. He says, delight yourself in the Lord. In other words, make God the primary focus of your life and he will give you the desires of your heart. God will give you those other things, uh, but focus on him first. Jesus echoed the same thing. In, in uh, Matthew 6.33 in the New Testament, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In other words, all the other distractions and concerns and the needs of life will be added to you, but focus on God first. Seek first his kingdom. Well, there's some, there's some uh, cultural strongholds that strangle marriages, and, and then there's God truths, God's truth that, that frees and, and flourishes marriages. And the first... Um, um, these uh, belief systems or cultural strongholds that that get in our way are, are, are uh, popular thinking about marriage that, that is in, in opposition to what God says about it. Stronghold number one is that I should allow my feelings 
to dictate my relationship decisions and actions. I should allow my feelings to dictate relationship uh, decisions and, and actions. A young husband and father I, I met with uh, told me not, not long ago that he didn't feel like he loved his wife anymore, so he was leaving her for another woman that he had stronger feelings for. I told him, uh, you know, of course, after some discussion with him, I told him, you know, you don't feel anything for your wife right now because uh, you're under this delusion. You're, you're, you have this romantic infatuation going, and you're not only immersed in pornography, but uh, you're also seeing another woman. So, of course, your feelings are not normal for your wife, but you, you can't lead with your feelings. He said, well, I'm trying to hear from God. I'm, uh, I'm having a hard time hearing from God about what I should do. I said, well, I can save you some time. I have a revelation from God for you. And that is he wants you back with your wife. He, he wants you with your wife. That's, that's his will for you. The culture would have us uh, drive our actions through our emotions, allow our emotions to drive our actions, and, and many times with disastrous results, right? The missing element here is, is God's truth. God's truth applied through the reason that God has given us to determine what our attitudes and actions should be. Here's God's perspective on the sanctity of marriage. He says, he says this clearly in Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That doesn't mean that there's not forgiveness uh, when someone sins. There is. God is gracious. And there can be forgiveness and, and restoration in marriages. I see it happen all the time. Uh, when, uh, when God releases his power into a marriage and, and restores marriage where there's been infidelity. Um, but in, instead of, my point is that instead of allowing whatever cultural whim is trending in the moment uh, to dictate our attitudes and, and actions, we need to be guided in our thinking and, and decision-making by the, the truth from God's word, the Bible. Uh, Romans 2 says, uh, excuse me, Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be forced into the mold of this world is the meaning, but, but rather be transformed um, in, in your thinking by the renewing of your mind, it says. Well, what we're doing this morning is, is renewing our minds on the subject of what God says about marriage from God's word. We're shaping our thinking, reshaping our thinking. The Holy Spirit's going to use the word of God to do that. Stronghold number two. Uh, marriage is a temporary contract for only as long as it meets my needs and, and makes me happy. And uh, it's a 50-50 deal. A contract is a 50-50 deal. You do, your, you do your part, I'll do my part. But if you fail to do your part, I'm no, more, I'm no longer obligated to do my part. So if my partner fails to meet my needs and makes me happy, the, the deal is off and I'm, I'm free to move on to another relationship that makes me happier. But what God says is that uh, a marriage is about two people who are willing to put their partner's needs ahead of their own as a tangible demonstration of that unconditional, sacrificial love that, that is supposed to be part of our, our marriage relationships. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. He says, In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And, and that attitude of humility and unselfishness is, is never more important than it is in the marriage relationship, is it? I tell young couples uh, that uh, what will sustain and nurture and make your relationship healthy over time is unselfishness. Putting the other person first in your relationship. What will, over time, uh, corrode and, and destroy your relationship is selfishness. It's, it's the cancer that eats away at, at relationships. Um, so unselfishness is the standard that God calls us to. Uh, stronghold number three, marriage is magic. It's some kind of magic and, and therefore should require no effort. And, and um, you see this uh, played out on the uh, end, end of the newsstands as you go through the checkout line in the supermarkets. Marriages come and, and marriages go. Relationships come and relationships go. The magic is gone. And if the magic is gone, there's nothing that can be done about it and, and you simply move on to another partner. That's, that's that, that myth, that false belief. I call it the Disney World expectation. That you get into marriage and you expect everything just to be wonderful. And he's Prince Charming and, and she's uh, the, the princess. And, and uh, 
people are unprepared sometimes for reality. It, this this uh, approach to life is epitomized in the Righteous Brothers song, you've, you've Lost That Love and Feeling. Some of you remember that song. Yeah, the older people here remember that song, don't we, Bob? That's right. Sorry to single, sorry to single you out, but we're, we're in the same generation. I, I was uh, distressed to see that that was released in 1964. That, that's over 50 years ago. How did that happen? And then it was popularized, of course, in 1986 again in uh, Top Gun. But um, let me just read you the, the first verse. <laughs> some, 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 Top Gun, come on. <laughs> Tom Cruise, remember the little short guy? Yeah. He just looked bigger in the plane. Just the first verse. Uh, you never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. You can hum along if you'd like. <laughs> and there's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it, but baby, baby, I know it. You lost that love and feeling. Whoa, that love and feeling. You lost that love and feeling. Now it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa, as Michael would say. <laughs> you see why he's the worship leader and I'm not. My point is not that I don't love that song, I do. I, it, it's great rock and roll, but it helped to shape our culture in a direction that, that was ungodly. What it, what it tells us is that love is about a feeling. What God says is, no, love is about a commitment. It's about a decision you make once, and then you make it again every day. But love is about a commitment. It's not, a, it's not about a, a feeling. God says that... Uh, and well, what happens in our culture is that the, the, the end result, and we, we see this, when you approach marriage as magical, is that on the, at the point in our relationship when it becomes unmagical, when the magic is gone, then, uh, then we see uh, people move through a string of failed relationships with partners endlessly pursuing the passions of romantic infatuation one after the other, and never really experiencing the happiness and satisfaction that God intended in the marriage relationship. Because real marriages require work, don't they? They require care and feeding. They require understanding and compassion and patience with each other and, uh, and open communication and, and the ability to work at conflicts and obstacles to work our way through them. God says that, that real love between a man and a woman is not diminished and weakened by hardship and difficulty, but rather it's refined and into a precious treasure as marriage partners commit to each other unconditionally to work through difficult circumstances together. And, and long and happy and satisfying marriages are not about choosing each other once. They're about choosing and affirming each other every day of our lives together, regardless of how we feel in the difficult circumstances of life. And the joy and the emotional intimacy that we're seeking in the marriage relationship come not from avoiding and running away from conflict and obstacles, but by embracing those things together and, and overcoming those challenges together. That, that's what produces joy and intimacy and, uh, and, and endurance in, in a relationship over time. Well, let's look at what God says about what makes a marriage work. First of all, it's not magic. It's about the things that we do. It's about things that we do. Scripture tells us again and again that this is the way to think, these are the attitudes to adopt, and, and this is how to live in, in your marriage relationship. What I always say to couples is that uh, I try to encourage them, even if they're in difficulty, by, by saying, um, you know, nobody teaches us how to be married. Isn't that true? Nobody teaches us how to be married. You're fortunate if you've had some, some good premarital counseling, and that can actually increase the the probability that you'll do well in marriage because you know some things that, that you didn't know before. Also, if you've had great role models as, uh, as parents in your family of origin, that can help a great deal because you've seen some positive ways to be a husband and a father, to be a, a wife and a mother, and, and you can model after those. That helps a lot, but nobody teaches us how to be married, and, and yet healthy marriages require some knowledge and skill. Like every other area of life, there is a body of knowledge and some skills that go with that that help you be successful. So couples in satisfying long-term healthy marriages do certain things well that make those relationships healthy. And, and couples in unhappy and, uh, and relationships full of conflict sometimes 
inadvertently do things that add to the pain and the conflict and the dysfunction, often because they uh, experience that same dysfunction in their family of origin. I always say that, uh, you know, we bring baggage into our, into our marriages from our family of origin and from previous relationships too. But we bring attitudes and expectations and ways of behaving, some of which are constructive and, and productive and help us in the relationship, but some of, some of which are not. Are, they're dysfunctional and they cause conflict and, and difficulty in our relationship. The, the good news is that marriage isn't rocket science. It, it, it's uh, about simple things that we can learn and, and do. We need to check the owner's manual. God has much to say about marriage. He's the one who created men and women, and he designed marriage for us to enjoy and, and to bring glory to him, uh, by the way. In Genesis 2, 18, the, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make, him, I will make a helper as his complement. This is the International Standard Version. I, I like the way that's rendered, as his complement, C-O-M-P-L-E. M-E-N-T, that is uh, somebody who, who fits together with him, somebody who uh, makes up for his weaknesses, who fills in the gaps, who can help him accomplish more than he could by himself. All those things are implied in, in that statement. And the word helper is the same Hebrew word that uh, is used when, um, when God says, the Lord, the Lord is my helper, the Lord is my helper. So it's the same word that is used for the Lord when he comes alongside us and helps us. It, it's not a, a mere assistant, but a powerful partner without whom life's tasks cannot be accomplished. You see, God's the one who wired us differently as men and women. He knows best how to make marriage work. Let's read about the, the roles of husbands and wives and what he intends for us in Ephesians 5, through 28. And I'm going to read it in the message translation. We don't use that very often. Um, some... Folks think of it as a paraphrase, but actually Eugene Peterson, who translated it out of the, in, uh, out of the original Greek language, uh, what he was trying to do was replicate the, the original rhythm and, and the meaning uh, of the, the Greek language, the, the flow of it as, it, um, uh, as the Greeks would have understood it, as the early church would have understood it in, in that time. And so it's a thought-for-thought translation, not a word-for-word translation like some of the others. So it sounds a little different, but it conveys the meaning that I want us to see this morning about the roles of husbands and wives. It says, Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ, as he exercises such leadership, Wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love make the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. I always joke with guys, that, that, that's uh, no pressure, is it? <laughs> to be compared with Christ the way Christ loves his church, that's how we're supposed to love our wives, that same degree of sacrifice and, uh, and putting her interests ahead of our own. Notice in this passage that Paul isn't commanding wives to feel respect, to feel the emotion of respect for their husbands, but rather to act in ways that communicate and convey respect, support, affirmation of his role as a spiritual leader in their home. Notice also that husbands, it, uh, that, uh, that husbands aren't commanded to feel love for their wives. It isn't about that. He's calling us to act in ways that are, are loving, act in ways that convey and communicate our, our love for our wives. He says uh, it should be marked by giving, not getting. Bring out the best in her. We as husbands are called to love our wives sacrificially by putting their needs ahead of our, our own. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Part of, the, part of the sacrifice we make is taking the time to understand our wives so that we can please them and meet their needs as husbands. See how countercultural God's perspective is from what the world's perspective is? 
Now, notice in both cases that we're not called to feel in a loving or respectful way. We're, we're called to change our attitudes and our actions to those that demonstrate mutual love and respect for our partner. And, and we might protest, well, we can't, con we can't control our attitudes, but God's Word said other says otherwise. Uh, somebody on the street might say, well, I can't help how I feel. I, you know, he makes me angry, or she irritates me. I can't help that. Well, God says that we can. He, he says in uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, he calls us to an attitude of servanthood toward our partner. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He uses Christ Jesus as a model. He says, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, Paul's saying, uh, I want you to adopt the same attitude that Jesus had, this attitude of servanthood, putting the other person first. Uh, God doesn't call us to wait until we feel a certain way uh, so that we can act that way. He says, no, I, I want you to uh, uh, choose attitudes and choose actions that reflect that unselfish servanthood. And then those, those feelings and emotions will follow. You see, he knows how he wired us. He knows that if we act in the way that he's called us to, that those feelings and emotions of, of love and respect will follow over time. Well, there are some simple biblical choices that we can make. And it's what we choose again. There are some simple biblical choices that we can make uh, in order to, to live in our marriages in the way that God intends. And one of those is to, choose, to, to view your marriage as a covenant rather than a contract. A covenant rather than a contract. Our, our culture views it as a, a contract. Uh, therefore, the way I treat you, whether I love you and remain committed to you, it depends on your behavior toward me. You do for me and, and I do for you. Uh, but if you fail to make me happy, then uh, I'm no longer obligated. The deal is off. That's not what God says about marriage. He says in Proverbs 5.18, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. He calls us to see marriage as a covenant. That is, uh, an unconditional love uh, toward each other. Uh, whether or not it's reciprocated. Where our, our, our love and our commitment are unconditional and they're forever. Everett Worthington, a prominent Christian psychologist and marriage counselor, wrote the, the book Hope Focused Marriage Counseling. He says this about uh, thinking about marriage as a covenant rather than a contract. He says people who enter marriage thinking of it as a contract will, will usually be disappointed. On many occasions, both parties will fail to live up to their end of the implicit agreement. That is simply the nature of human existence. However, people who view marriage as a lifelong covenant that depends on their own pledge and honor, not their partner's perfect adherence to a contract, can better tolerate the inevitable misunderstandings. Furthermore, the covenantal understanding of marriage promotes devotion. Partners expect to be together. Therefore, a covenantal view of marriage actually results in fewer breaches of the implicit contract. In other words, think of your marriage as a covenant and not a contract. You have 100% of the responsibility for making it work if you're a partner in a marriage relationship. Choose to make God the, the center of your marriage. Uh, Dr. Brad Wilcox uh, directs the National Marriage Project at University of Virginia. He reports that couples in which both partners agree that God is at the center of our marriage are twice as likely to report that they're happy as opposed to those who, who do not agree. One of the books that I, I use in marriage counseling, both premarital and, and other kinds of counseling, is uh, a book by a, a woman named Shanti Feldhunt. It's called Surprising Secrets of Highly Happy Marriages. What I like about it is uh, she is a, a follower of Jesus Christ. She's also a Harvard-trained social researcher. And um, she looks at the data. And so she's inter interviewed uh, thousands of uh, couples, uh, both those in conflict and, and those who are highly happy. Her goal is to, to try to understand what, what makes for strong, healthy, long-term marriage relationships and th those that are happy and satisfying. And what can we learn from those couples that we can replicate in our own marriage? This is one of her findings. 
She says, highly happy couples tend to put God at the center of their marriage and focus on him rather than on their marriage or their spouse for fulfillment and happiness. Well, what does it look like in practical terms to put God at the center of your marriage? Well, she says these couples, they, they worship together. They're plugged into a faith community. They share some key biblical values. They focus on serving their partners rather than being served. They look to God for the power to be selfless that they don't have naturally. And, and I need to tell you that uh, to live in our marriages in the way that God intends, we need the power of God to do that. You, you can't do that on a human level, to be selfless in that way on a human level. We need God's power to do that. He transforms us from the inside out. That's what he does. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Then they pray with each other and for each other. They trust God for the outcome. Let me encourage you to, to cultivate where, wherever you are in your marriage relationship or in other relationships for that matter, cultivate your personal walk with God from day to day. Uh, what are you doing uh, to deepen and uh, make more, uh, more vital your connection with God from day to day? Um, I, I always ask uh, uh, couples this when, when I, I first meet with them. Uh, hey, how are you doing in terms of your walk with God? Uh, very often the response is, uh, in, in fact, in every occasion that I can remember, the, re the response is, uh, you know, Gary, not very well. I'm kind of discouraged. I feel like God is distant right now, and, and I, I just can't seem to, I don't have the discipline to, uh, you know, get into the Bible every day. I don't, it's hard to pray, all that. I understand that. And you know what happens, folks, is that we run, when, when we're in trouble, we, we run from the, the source of the power and the healing that can help us. Uh, that, that's what Satan does to us. He pulls us away from God when God is the only help that we have. So um, my counsel is uh, spend time daily in God's word and in prayer. As you get closer to God, uh, you'll find you're becoming closer to your spouse. And many of the relationship issues that you're praying about suddenly e evaporate or they become easier to deal with uh, because uh, God is releasing his power into your relationship to change those things. So stay connected with God. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 3, let the message about Christ in all, its in, in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. The wisdom comes from God. We need to stay connected to that. God's word is transformative. It's not a book of, just a book of information. It's a book that transforms us. The Holy Spirit uses, us to, uses it to change us in our lives. And then choose to believe the best about your partner. Again, Shanti Feldhahn's research indicates that 97% of marriage partners, even if they're in conflict, carried, care deeply about their spouses and want the best for them. But here's the other shoe. That is that only 50% of those spouses actually believe that about their partner. And, and that gap points to the need to, to walk the talk in our relationship and, and behave in ways that show that we care about our partner. What we choose to believe our partners a, about our partner is a critical factor in, in the success of our marriages. She says, highly happy spouses choose to believe their mate cares for them no matter what they're seeing from their spouse or feeling at the time, they act accordingly. They give their spouse the benefit of the doubt. They believe that their spouse holds positive regard for them and is for them. They don't automatically assume the negative uh, when there's a, a circumstance that would, would um, cause them to doubt. And then they choose to, to, to communicate openly and, and resolve conflict without drama. Um, in counseling, I, I use a, an instrument called Prepare and Enrich. It's the most widely used marriage assessment in the, in the world. And what it helps couples to understand is how, how, not only how they match up, uh, but then also um, what are their relationship strengths across nine core areas. And, and two of those uh, core areas are in communication and conflict resolution. Uh, and, and many times the, the biggest problem areas for us in our marriage relationships is communicating openly with each other and then resolving conflict as well in, in our marriage relationship. And, and those are often two of the biggest problem areas those are also two of the most important tools in our toolkit. I tell couples that if you can communicate openly and if you can resolve problems in, in a positive way together, uh, you can handle just about everything else that comes at you in, in life. But we need to be able to, in terms of communication, we need to be able to share our deepest needs and desires with our partner without fear of judgment, 
criticism, condemnation, or, or being evaluated. And, and that means that, that our partner has to make it safe for us to share those things. Sometimes we feel like we need to evaluate, uh, judge, or criticize everything that comes out of our partner's mouth. Well, nothing will shut off communication faster. When, when a husband or a wife says to me, my, you know, my partner just won't talk to me, I say, well, what do you say when they do talk to you? And, and very often it's, it's the case that, that we judge or demean or talk down our partner for what they're thinking or what they share with us. They're not likely to continue to do that. Uh, the key is to listen empathetically. Try to understand. Stephen Covey in his book, uh, um, Seven Secrets of Highly Effective People, says seek first to understand and then to be understood. Seek first to understand and then, and then to be understood. And then conflict needs to be resolved without anger in a way that satisfies both partners. I, I um, met a young couple some time ago now, and, and uh, they, I said, well, how can I help you? They said, well, we've got so much conflict in our marriage. I said, well, how do you handle this conflict in your marriage? And they said, well, you know, frankly, we stand toe-to-toe with each other and shout at each other, and then we stomp off with it unresolved. And, and I put on my best Dr. Phil face, and I said, well, how's that working for you? And, and they said, not very well. They laughed and said, not very well. And I said, well, good news. There's, there's a better way to do that. There's a better way to resolve conflict. But you see, that's, that's the way of resolving conflict that they had brought in from their family of origin. They thought that was normal. They thought that's the way everybody did it. I said, no, there's a much more constructive way that won't, you won't cause any damage. You know, words are weapons, and they cause damage. And uh, if you get angry and the conflict escalates, uh, you can do more damage to the relationship. So once they had a different... Uh, understanding of how to resolve conflict, uh, they were much more successful in that. The relationship improved. Uh, James speaks to the way that we should communicate as marriage partners. He says this from the Word of God. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Yeah, uh, there's one we can apply, right? In our relationships at home and, and elsewhere. And then we need to choose to, to love and forgive. God commands us specifically to love and forgive. He says in Colossians 1, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Couples, Everett Worthington again, Couples with long-term successful marriages have identified forgiveness as one of the top three qualities responsible for their marital success. Forgiveness and love are mutually dependent on each other. You can't have one without the other long-term. Erwin McManus says that forgiveness and, or excuse me, bitterness is the enemy of love because it makes you unforgiving and unwilling to give Love unconditionally. It's the enemy of hope because you keep living in the past and you become incapable of seeing a better future. Don't wait for your partner to ask for forgiveness. Don't wait till they deserve it. Be the first to forgive and ask and, and keep short accounts. I, I tell couples, keep short accounts. Don't, don't bury uh, unhappiness and... and uh, um, unresolved conflict and, and bitterness. It, it just corrodes and destroys the, the relationship over time. I, I told a wife recently, uh, you need to forgive, not just for him, but for you, to, to release you so that you can heal. Now, I, I have to hurry to say, that's not to say that, that we don't address, that we don't need to address the offenses that created the need for forgiveness in the first place. Those things have to be addressed. There has to be remorse and repentance and forgiveness has to be asked and received probably multiple times over a period of time in, in order for healing and real forgiveness to take place. But unforgiveness held over a long time will erode the love and commitment in a marriage and will destroy it. Here's the flip side of that. Brad Wilcox again found generosity to be the key to long-term marital Happiness. He says, marital generosity is one of the greatest contributing factors to happy marriages. Generosity is defined as being when one partner will simply do nice things for the other, getting nothing in return. 
Some examples are small acts of kindness, expressing admiration, expressing respect, and, and forgiving their spouses for something. Uh, choosing not to make something a, a battle, overlooking the offense, for example. Uh, some of you are familiar with the five love languages. If, if, uh, if we're going to find practical ways to demonstrate generosity to our spouse, then, then these are, are five that will help. Dr. Gary Chapman some years ago wrote a book called The Five Love Languages. What he says is that each of us has a, has a preference for how we give and receive love in our relationship. If you can identify for how your partner uh, prefers to receive uh, love from you in your relationship, uh, then you can increase a closer sense of, or you can experience a closer sense of connectedness, increased emotional intimacy in your relationship. So words of affirmation, that is making a a person feel, making your partner feel valued and and loved in the relationship. Quality time, spending, spending time with them doing something that, that they enjoy doing or you enjoy doing together. Uh, giving and receiving gifts is another one. Uh, acts of service, doing something that uh, even before your partner asks about it, d- doing something for your partner to, to serve them and to please them. And then physical touch. We all know how powerful that is, holding hands or, or, um, or putting your arm around the shoulder, um, those things. But I've given you in your bulletin there, there's, a, there's a, an assessment uh, love languages, personal profile. That's your homework. Take, take that home. Uh, each, each one of you as partners, uh, take that assessment, figure out what your primary love languages are, and then start, start meeting each other uh, in, in those preferred love languages. And start start uh, ministering to your partner in that way. And then choose to cultivate your friendship. I always ask uh, couples in premarital counseling, how did you meet? Did you become friends? Uh, because a relationship needs to progress through, through a series of um, experiences together. There, there has to be a, usually people meet, I mean the right way to, that it happens is uh, people meet, um, they get to know each other, then they become attracted to each other, then a romance develops, and, and then they, they decide that they can't live without each other. They commit to each other for life. Then they get married and they make babies and, and so on. And, and that's, that's the way that a relationship uh, is supposed to develop, a healthy relationship develops. Too often in our culture, what happens is people meet, they're physically attracted to each other, they, they wind up in a situation of, of sexual intimacy, and, and then um, the, the friendship, the underlying relationship uh, that is at the core of, of that larger relationship uh, atrophies. And, and it, it goes into a case of a, a, a arrested development. It... it, it um, uh, in, in the romantic infatuation that's occurring, that the friendship no longer has a chance to develop. So uh, you, you miss some things, and, and that's, you miss some things in, that might be red flags or, or that might cause you to see that you don't fit together because the friendship doesn't develop naturally over time. And so people wind up in a series of unhappy relationships. They wake up two weeks later or two months later next to somebody and say, uh, not only do I not know this person, I don't even like them. And, and they go on to pursue the next relationship. Happy couples uh, hang out together. Uh, married couples who spend some sort of time talking or sharing an activity at least once a week were, get this, five times more likely to be very happy in their marriages than, than those who didn't, according to Dr. Brad Wilcox. It, it's powerful, time together is powerful. Happiness comes from cultivating relationship, which is a function of the time that we spend together. Uh, I often ask couples, uh, when I counsel with them, what kind of time are you spending together? Uh, They talk about whatever's going on in their relationship, and I say, well, are you spending time together? And how much time are you spending together? And uh, many times they'll respond almost simultaneously, zero or not much. And, and, And I'll say, well, how do you expect to maintain a relation, a healthy relationship together and cultivate that core friendship with, without spending some time together. It doesn't work in any other relationship, does it? It doesn't work in our relationship with God or, or any other friendship we have. How is, it, how is that going to work in your marriage relationship? And, and uh, Shanti Feldhahn found the same thing in her research. She says, highly happy couples aren't just spending time together because they're happy. A big part of the reason they're happy is because they're spending time together. Some of it is a function of the time we spend together. A wife came up to me after the service last night and said, I'm so glad you said that. 
We knew that to be true. And in fact, I just arranged for my, uh, the grandparents to take care of the kids next Friday so my husband and I can spend the, the evening together on a, on a date night just to reconnect with each other. If you sense some distance in your relationship that you're drifting apart, um, my question to you is how much time do you spend together? Are you so busy with other things, even good things, even activity with kids and the pressures of your careers and those kinds of things, are, are you so busy with those things that you don't have time for your spouse for the most important relationship in your life? Dr. David Clark says this about the emotional intimacy that we're trying to build and a, and a wife's need for that. If you're not talking regularly with your wife on a personal level, I have some bad news for you. She doesn't feel loved by you. The number one desire of your wife's heart is to be close to you. Write that down. So my prescription for couples many times is, hey, listen, I want you to spend 15 to 30 minutes a day, eyeball to eyeball time, shut off the TV, put the phone away, put down the newspaper, eyeball to eyeball, 15 to 30 minutes a day, reconnect with each other. Talk about what's going on in your day. It doesn't have to be anything gut-wrenching or heavy. Talk about what's going on in your day. Talk about something positive that happened to you. Uh, just share that connectedness for 15 to 30 minutes. Then once a week or so, spend a couple hours together doing something that you enjoy doing together. Reconnect. Rebuild that emotional intimacy and that core friendship. The, rediscover the, the, the reason why um, you married that person in the first place and what you love about them. Couples sometimes come back after a couple weeks and are amazed. I say, how are things going? They say, uh, you know, we're, we're doing great. And I don't know what the reason is, but we're doing great. And I say, well, you know, you're spending some time together. You're rediscovering each other, what you love about each other, reconnecting again. That's how it works. It's a function of time. You have to nurture that core friendship. It requires care and feeding. Some of the small things that we can do that uh, make a big difference I always look for a checklist. Okay, what do I need to do? Well, this is where the rubber meets the road Monday morning or even Sunday afternoon, folks, in terms of your marriage relationship. These are some things that you can do. Shanti Feldhahn, in, in her research, identified the, the top five things that matter to men and the top five things that mattered to women. And she shares them with us here. First of all, for, for him, she, she notices his effort and sincerely thanks him for it things around the house, providing for the family, whatever it is. She says, you did a great job at this or that. When's the last time you heard that? Ladies, when's the last time you shared that with your, your spouse? Uh, she mentions in front of others something he did well. Um, a friend up north said to me about her husband, um, you know, Mike can fix anything. And she said it with such a sense of admiration that I, that I kind of made a mental note. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. She shows that she desires him sexually and that he pleases her. Sex is more than a physical act to a man. It's part of the deep emotional bond that we feel with our wives. That's why it's so important to men. She makes it clear to him that he makes her happy. Our desire, believe it or not, our desire, ladies, is, is to please you. That's what husbands are wired to do. And, and we want to do that. So, so tell us that when we make you happy. The Fantastic Five for her. He takes her hand when walking through a parking lot or at the movies. Uh, how many women is that important to? How many women does that have meaning for? If he takes your hand walking through a parking lot or... Yeah, quite a few, right? Yeah, it's okay to admit that. That's, that's how God wired you. That's right. Yeah, we, we, and, and that's what she discovered in her research. He leaves a voicemail, email, or text to know, let her know he is thinking of her. He puts his arm around her or his hand on her knee when in public together. Somebody uh, talked to me at the break and said, uh, wow, my husband does that. It makes me feel so connected to him, so safe. Thank you very much. He pulls himself, he tells her sincere, sincerely that she is beautiful. And, and then he he pulls himself out of a funk when he's upset instead of withdrawing emotionally. Sometimes we as men, uh, when we're frustrated about something, we go to our cave, don't we? And, and uh, we withdraw emotionally. And, and what is important here is that we choose a positive attitude instead. We choose to have a positive attitude instead. Well, friends, uh, all truth is it's God's truth. And the best relationship 
advisor is not Cosmo magazine. It's God himself. He wrote the book. He wired us. He built us. He knows men and women, and, and he designed relationship. It came out, he designed the marriage relationship. It came out of the mind of God at creation. And, and healthy, satisfying, long-term relationships happen because of choices we make and, and things that we do well in our marriage relationship. If we deliberately try to unselfishly meet our partner's needs and cultivate the core friendship that, that's at the center of our marriage relationship, we'll have healthy relationships. If we immerse ourselves in what God has to say about marriage and about relationships, and then we choose actions and attitudes that are informed by the Word of God, then we'll be able to say, along with Shulamith, Solomon's lover in the Song of Solomon, uh, this is my lover. This is my friend. That's what we all want, isn't it? Let's pray, shall we? Your Father, we thank you for uh, the light that you've shed on the most uh, important relationship in our lives. And Lord, uh, I, I pray for the marriages that are represented here today. Lord, that you'd empower them, that you'd release your power into these marriages. And no matter what uh, the issues uh, I, I pray that, uh, that you would minister to these partners, that you draw them close together in a bond of love and commitment, that you'd heal the wounds, that you'd bring uh, uh, forgiveness and compassion and understanding where that's necessary, but that you'd draw them together in that bond of love and that you'd create in those marriages uh, a model of uh, Jesus' sacrificial love toward us so that people would look at the marriages represented here and they'd say, What's going on there? That, that isn't something that can happen on a human level. That, that's something that God must be involved in and we'd be able to point people back to, to God and his work in our lives. Thank you for, uh, for what you're doing in our, our lives. We, we ask that, uh, that you'd empower us as we go out into the world uh, to, to live in our marriages and in our other relationships as Jesus Christ would. Allow, allow us to evidence the character of Christ in every relationship we have. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Folks, uh, a couple things. Uh, I put a book table in back. There's a book list in your notes. And there, some of those books are represented out back. If you, uh, the quickest way sometimes to, to grow in uh, uh, health and understanding in your relationship is, is to grab a book and, and read about how to have a healthy marriage. So feel free to pick one of those up. And then also there will be somebody down front here. If there's somebody that needs prayer, we always have somebody down front here after the service to to pray with you. Thanks for your time today. Have a great week, will you?